Hey there, it's Malika. We want to thank you all for following our international coverage of the U.S. elections for the past few weeks. On Saturday came big news after a long and bitter race. Former Vice President Joe Biden passes the threshold needed to claim victory, and he's on course to becoming the 46th president of the United States. Making this election historic is the new vice president, Kamala Harris. She'll be the first woman to serve in the office and first female of color to do so. Check out our earlier episode on her and on the power of Black women voters in the U.S. It's called, Will Kamala Harris Tip the Scales Toward Joe Biden? It ran back on September 19th. And stick around for what we have for you today. You don't want to miss it. I've been living in Bangkok and covering Thai politics for eight years. This is the farthest I have ever seen any kind of movement discuss reform within the monarchy. And I've never seen it go this far. Scott Heidler is Al Jazeera's correspondent in the Thai capital, Bangkok. In his eight years there, he's seen a coup, a few elections, and a lot of protests. But this year still stands apart. An extraordinary day in Thailand. Protests in Bangkok are demanding curbs to the king's powers. These protesters, who are mostly young people, students, schoolchildren, then being shot by with water cannons laced with chemicals. This is a new dimension that we have seen here in Thailand. Protesters made a rare direct challenge to the king on Tuesday chanting at his passing convoy after 21 activists were arrested during scuffles with police. That last bit about challenging the monarchy is truly unheard of in a country where just criticizing the king could land you in jail. But we're starting to see protesters speak out in defiance anyway, not just in group chants, but even individually. I don't think that by coming here today the monarchy would end in my generation, but at least we could try bringing them back under the democratic system, under the constitution. I just want to say that to speak out about the monarchy is something that we can do. His Majesty appointed government has failed to manage things. We the people hope to see the form of the monarchy to be under the constitution and the same law as the people do. It's bold of Thailand's protesters to behave in this way. And they say they'll keep doing it, keep taking to the streets, until their key demands are met. So, is democratic stability on the horizon for a country that's had 12 coups and 20 constitutions in the past century? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The protesters in Bangkok have been creative, largely peaceful, and well-organized, though leaderless. But there was one protest last month, on October 16th, that got very violent. Scott was in the middle of it. It was one of those late afternoons, it was a Friday, 3 o'clock. All right, we're going to meet at this intersection, which is right in the central part of two high-end shopping centers right there. And then it's right along Sukhumvit Road, which is the main road through downtown Bangkok. A lot of times when you have these big gatherings, it turns into a bit of a festival. It's funny because the protesters kind of speak in codes, and one of them is the CIA. 
And what they're referring to are the food vendors because they seem to know more than anyone else because they're there before the most of the protesters, they're there before the police. There are people selling t-shirts with slogans for the protest movement, they're there. So the CIA were there in force and there was a big police presence where they said they were going to go. So you had a bigger stretch of Sukhumvit, this main road in Bangkok, kind of blocked off because you had the cops who blocked off one area and then you had the protesters who were blocking off another intersection. The government has been pushing us to the cliff and now we are on the edge. So now we, are, we have nowhere to go left. We need to stand right now. If not now, then we don't know when. On loudspeakers, the police were saying, disperse, disperse, this is a legal gathering. So the protesters kind of came up to meet them and then a front line was, was drawn. We had rows and rows of riot police with helmets and shields. And then uh, a water cannon truck came behind. They gave them a warning again. They even counted down. And then that's when we saw the, the water cannon. We were literally standing right next to it. They opened the water cannons. Some barricades were thrown kind of back and forth. The cops kind of pushed forward and they came back. Um, and at one stage, they were using this blue dye water. And essentially what it is, it's, it's the, the police said it's dyed blue, or there's a blue dye in it so they can identify protesters down the line. But there is an irritant in it. It burns your skin when it comes in contact. If it, you know, becomes in an aerosol form when it's hitting something, it, it goes into your eyes. So it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's not fun. Scott had been hit by this kind of blue dye before while covering protests this year in Hong Kong, but he'd never seen this before in Bangkok. The police didn't have any type of gas masks or anything. Protesters didn't because there hadn't been any examples of tear gas being used before. Shortly before the October 16th protests, the government had imposed a gathering ban. Groups of more than five people weren't legally allowed on the streets. That's how the police justified the water cannons. Soon after the protests, the prime minister lifted the decree because of the backlash. In a pre-recorded televised address on Wednesday evening, Mr. Prayut said that he wants to reduce tensions with this move and lower the temperature in what has been a very heated week. He went on to say this, quite interesting, while I can listen to and acknowledge the demands of protesters, I cannot run the country based on protester or mob demands. It is a rare occasion by the Thai government and Prime Minister Prayut But despite this attempt to cool down the temperature, we can still accept that the foreseeable future here in Thailand will remain heated. Now there are whispers of a different kind of turmoil approaching. As we mentioned earlier, Thailand has had a dozen coups in the past 90 years. The most recent one was in 2014. And already, five months into this year's protests, rumors of an impending coup are circulating again in Bangkok. When you look at Thailand's history, political history, there have been repeated coups and counter coups. I've lived here eight years and I've lived through one coup. When you look at what's going on right now with the discussions about coups again, let's put it into context. Prayut Chinocha, who's the prime minister now, he led the coup in 2014. I actually interviewed him about a year after that, just after the year anniversary of the coup. And one of my first questions that I posed to him, and I said, What will your role be once elections take place? He's like, 
Under our roadmap, we already passed the first phase. After the election, I will pack my bag and go home. I will be sitting at home watching Thailand progress in the right direction. He's like, I'll be happily watching what happens in Thailand's political landscape from home. Fast forward six years down the line, he's the prime minister. So when you hear uh, discussions about possible coup, or there's going to be no coup, or you know threats of coups, or concerns about coups, you need to put it into context based on that that history here in Thailand. That's right. Thailand's current prime minister led the push to overthrow the last one. This is the cycle we've seen in Thailand since 1932. Every time there's a push for political reform, the military hits the reset button. After overthrowing the government in 2014, the military stayed involved. You've got a military-led government. Uh, now they're democratically elected from last year's election, but there's still laws and rules that very heavily favor an authoritarian-style government. In the Senate, the military has a certain guarantee of seats, so there can't be any constitutional changes brought forth by the opposition parties the way the constitution is drafted now. There are opposition parties in parliament. Uh, one new one uh, that sprouted up in this past election did very well, but because of the control the military-backed government has over laws, a lot of the critics, the main critics, were marginalized. The leading member of what was then called the Future Forward Party, now it's called Move Forward Party, he won his election, but he was disqualified because of um, some investments he had in a media company. So technicalities. So they went after these critical voices for technicalities a lot. The Future Forward Party was forced to dissolve. And that's what triggered this year's protests. For young people across Thailand, it was the period at the end of a long list of grievances. Since July, what these young people were really fighting for, and this is kind of the spark for them, was that they did not see the country going in a way that provided a future to them. Um, so then it's, it started to grow and grow and grow. And then it identified a list of, of demands, if you will. And this is the most controversial. Again, I've been here for eight years, and this is territory that I have not seen broached in any of those eight years, even coming close to that. And that is reform of the monarchy. Over months of protests, criticism of the government became criticism of the king because... Technically, it's a constitutional monarchy. Um, so, you know, the, the, the government is run by the prime minister, but there are certain things that need to be approved by the palace and things. And so that's how we've ended up with the protesters calling for three main demands. One, they want Prime Minister Prayuth Chanocha to resign and the military-drafted constitution to be scrapped and rewritten. Two, they want the police to stop arresting and harassing activists. And three, they want to reform the monarchy. And that's controversial, to say the least. There are several reasons why it's sensitive. One is because you have this generational divide. You have the older generations who have revered the monarchy have seen the kings as demigods. You had one king, Rama IX, who was seen as a demigod, who ruled for decades. He was a, a king of the people. He was out a lot when he was healthy, um, doing things for, for the community. Then his son, Rama X, came into power, and um, he's a different style king. And so you felt a sea shift over the last couple of years since he ascended 
to the throne. So you've ha- kind of felt the sea change both generationally, but then also the different styles of the kings. Um, so that this last demand is something that, that the protesters are asking for. Here's how one protester describes the people's view of the royal family. We all know how much the royal family has been paid by the government per year, which is very high as the richest royal family in the world. They live in luxury, but the people are still living in poverty. Protesters say they want to reform the monarchy to tackle that inequality. Scott's spoken with them too. What they're looking for is more transparency. They say very vehemently that they don't want to uh, abolish the monarchy. They just want reform within the monarchy. But it's been hard to say exactly what that means. The protesters have been creative in suggesting reforms. For example... The current king has spent most of his time in Germany. So the protesters have kind of focused on this. One fairly large protest movement, it was actually a march. The change has arrived. They went to the German embassy and delivered a letter to have the German government investigate if he is breaching any laws by spending so much time in Germany but having a role in governing Thailand. The German government said, yes, we'll investigate further. They said that right now they don't see any evidence that he has broken any laws in that regard. But it was an interesting move by the protest movement to say, OK, we want royal reform. And here's one of the areas we think well, maybe it could be. So it was it was interesting to to see how you know, strategic they were in that. And again, we need to stress that it's a huge deal that protesters feel emboldened enough to call for that kind of reform to actively go ask another country to investigate their king's behavior. Because there could be grave consequences for taking that kind of action. There are very strict uh, Las Majeste laws um, still in effect here, and they're kind of sporadically enforced, that any kind of statement, movement, that is critical of the monarchy, you can get thrown in jail straight away. It has been slowly and steadily pushed aside, if you will, and even the current king and his father before him indicated that they don't want that law used that much. But because you have the laws that this military-backed government has in place, similar laws can be applied against those who are critical of the government, too. But criticism of the government is what protesting is all about. So activists in Thailand are really threading a needle here. They feel forced to think outside the box like they did with the German embassy protests, and also in how they approach the language around reforming the monarchy. It it is definitely new territory. There's no other way to really describe it. They weave it into the theme that the society here, the power structures here in Thailand have been unchanged for so long, and there's clearly been a problem with them because of the cycle that you've seen of coups, elections, other coups, not so peaceful transitions in leadership. Essentially, they're saying the system isn't great, the system is broken, we need to reform all of it. And the monarchy plays a role in that, so they've folded the monarchy in. Scott says the Thai protesters have also expressed their frustration with the government through symbolic gestures and acts of civil disobedience. I'd say maybe once every weekend, you see tens of thousands come out, but then you see little small kind of acts of social disobedience, um, 
popping up here and there during the week. For example, there was one protest he saw just two weeks ago from a train station. Someone visiting Thailand may not even recognize it as a protest, but in actuality, it targeted a very clear symbol of Thai patriotism. Here in in Thailand, at 8 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the evening, um, particularly in public transportation, everybody stops and they listen to the uh, national anthem. Protesters orchestrated a, I guess, kind of like a flash mob. So they said there'll be a big surprise. Get ready to go to your nearest station uh, by five. And then they trickle out a little bit more information. Okay, get there at five, gather, and then further instructions will come. And then that's when it came. Obviously, this is going to be a, a act of civil disobedience during the national anthem at six o'clock. They sang the national anthem, but they flew their three-finger salute that has become an identifier for this protest movement. We were at one that was in central Bangkok, one of the bigger stations. It was a few dozen people. So it wasn't like, you know, they were creating a hazard to people trying to commute or they were compromising the integrity of the bridges or anything. It was just kind of a flash mob, civil disobedience, and then then off they went. Right after the national anthem, they just kind of chanted. Some were holding signs, said there are three demands, and then dispersed. The protesters had taken an act of patriotism, singing the national anthem, and turned it into an act of protest with their three-finger salute. In this case, the government let the civil disobedience slide, but they've reacted to other similar situations with a heavy hand, not just on the streets, but in the courts. The thing that is of concern for the protesters and that organizer level is that because most of these protests, if not all these protests, have technically been illegal, the police, I'm sure, have had a list of charges against all these leaders. So sometimes they were released on a charge that they had been detained on and then rearrested because they had another charge kind of locked and loaded. So I think at this stage, both sides, I believe, are calculating where this movement goes next. Parliament is now back in session. They're talking about uh, creating a reconciliation committee to see how there can be a political way forward. Again, I've been here eight years. I've seen reconciliation committees before formed. Things have calmed down, but that proper reconciliation, there, there is this divide in society here in Thailand. It was never mended. It was just kind of quieted. We heard from one protester who blamed the government for that divide, which often falls along economic lines. Since the 2014 coup d'etat overthrew the democratic elected government, people still live in a higher economic gap. Inequality has increased. Liberty is blocked. Freedom is limited. The people hurt. The people feel pain. And no one can ignore this. The only way is to fight against it. Scott says oftentimes it's the wealthy, the elite, the business leaders who are connected to the monarchy and want to keep it in place. They and their supporters are known as the yellow shirts. Then there's a decades-old counter-movement called the red shirts, who have historically pushed for democracy. And now the young students are leading their charge, protesting against a system they say keeps them at an economic disadvantage. 
the economy is tied to those who are connected to the leadership structure here in Thailand. So the students and younger people are saying, enough, we're stuck in the middle. We're being told that we have to continue to live in this kind of two-world society where we, we don't want it. There is one division that Scott says the protests have healed to some extent this year, and that's the generational divide. At one of the big protests, um, one of the first protests that the Red Shirts, those who are part of the populist pro-democracy movement that has been around for, for decades, we spoke with a kind of a regional Red Shirt leader, and they had been dormant for quite a while after this last coup. So it was interesting to talk to one of these regional Red Shirt leaders, and I'm like, so are you guys taking over this movement now? Are you merging it in with the students? He's like, right now, we're behind the students. We believe in what they're fighting for, but this is their time. This is their movement. So you have this seasoned movement group that is now fully behind what the, the students are all about. And it's interesting because I'm sure that there are other people out there who don't tick either box, students or red shirts, but who are also supporting the movement as well. So I think that kind of classic groundswell of an idea of a movement was fascinating to see. Now, on the other side, the, the yellow shirts seem to be more kind of your classic pro-monarchy, the elites in, in, in Bangkok. But I think you'll probably start to see other sectors of society start to support them as well. So you really do see more people coming out kind of now at this point. There's been a rallying cry on both sides to come out and, and have their, their voice heard. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbe with Nigin Oliai, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Oniwo Hacha, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is our team's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. We'll be back.